These are the Get Over Yourself Podcast Sponsors. MoFo, male optimization formula with organs to boost testosterone naturally. Brad's Macadamia Masterpiece, a mind-blowing nut butter blend. Carol Fit, stationary bike, awesome eight-minute workout. Organifi, whole food organic superfood supplements and drink blends. Perfect Keto, the cleanest, highest potency ketone supplements. Viore Clothing, fashionable, functionable, incredibly comfortable performance apparel. And please visit the bradkerns.com shop page for my personal selection of favorite products for health, fitness, and peak performance. And here we go with the show. We're talking about people who are going to go into combat with, you know, with their brothers in arms to their right and their left. And the number one goal is not that they're fit. The number one goal is to make sure that this is a person who, with his dying breath, will do everything to accomplish the mission. I never won anything, but I was always in the top finishers of all of those. I never failed a single physical event in all of BUDS, but I also never won one of them. The only superpower I have is superhuman will, right? I just have, uh, and many SEALs do, and many successful people do. It's not necessarily the physical talents, or the mental talents or whatever it is. It's just superhuman will. Hey, listeners, you are going to love this amazing journey of Eric Frohart, former Navy SEAL. We are going to go backstage into the world of basic training and trying to make it through that amazingly difficult funnel to graduate the Navy SEAL Buds training and become a member of the SEAL teams. Eric did it for 12 years, going all over the world, applying amazing and disparate skills. He was a sniper. He was the lead mountain climber. He was a demolition expert. Oh my gosh. But just getting started from a small town experience in Iowa, he went off to college. He formulated a dream one day that he wanted to be a Navy SEAL. He wanted to prove people wrong that told him he couldn't do it. Imagine those people saying he can't make it to become a Navy SEAL. (laughs) And so off he went. And you're going to pick up a recurring theme in his story, which was a total lack of experience or preparation to take on these phenomenal challenges. And he just went out there and did them. The first time he saw the ocean was at Navy SEAL training. He climbed the highest mountains in North America and South America with no mountaineering preparation, did a little trip up El Capitan, the most impressive wall on earth with very little preparation, and he did it with this incredibly resolute and positive mindset. Listen carefully during the recording to his speech patterns and how he closes the loop on these comments like, it was just going to happen, we were just going to get it done, etc., etc. It's a great show. We just simply have a conversation about what it's like to go for these dreams and achieve them and try to leverage those skills into real life. Interestingly, towards the end, he talks about how it is a difficult transition to come out of that intense military experience into real life, but the importance of leveraging those skills and that mindset that he developed into his various entrepreneurial efforts that he's been making in recent years. So please enjoy this interesting conversation. You're going to be wowed. You're going to be pumped up. And here we go with Eric Frohart. 
I have Eric Frohart coming to me from his new home, exciting, or en route to your new home, uh, Omaha, Nebraska. So we come to the heartland to bring you this show, listeners, and it is going to be a wild one. We've warmed up for just a few minutes, and I've already heard some amazing uh, discussion points that we're going to get into. But, oh, man, thanks for joining us, Eric. Yeah, thanks. Uh, happy to be here. It's been fun listening to a few of your episodes uh, recently. Uh, very cool. Well, your background is extremely interesting. Uh, you're still a young guy, and you got a long life ahead of you. But oh my gosh, what what a journey! <laughs> um, particularly the experience as a Navy SEAL. But yeah. I want to get right into that, especially those. Um, quick transitions that you mentioned about how you, you, you jumped into this. You'd never seen the ocean when you went off to SEAL training. Uh, so tell us uh, kind of, you know, your background and how, how you got into that uh, extremely intense career. Sure. Well, um, you know, my wife and I joke about this regularly. I just turned 42. Um, you know, we're both, so we're both 42. Uh, we've been married for nearly um, 18 years. Uh, we have four kids, essentially ages eight uh, to 15. We've lived in San Diego, Virginia, Denver, and now Omaha. And I think, you know, I've done seven combat deployments. So in 42 years, we've kind of, we've crammed a lot into it so far. <laughs> um, and, and really probably the most, you know, one of the more interesting things for me, the most rewarding thing, you know, being married and having kids, it's been really a huge blessing, but, uh, you know, a lot of people are more interested in the, uh, my time in the SEAL teams. Um, and I had, uh, so I was in college for one year and, uh, uh, I was playing football and I kind of realized after one season of football that. The good Lord had not, you know, made me for that. Uh, not quite big, fast, or strong enough uh, for it. And then, uh, literally, was watching a movie in a dorm room one, uh, you know, one night in college, my freshman year. And I there was something about the Navy SEALs came on, and uh, you know, I stood up and said, "Hey, I I'm gonna leave college and become a Navy SEAL." And someone was like, you'll never make it right. It's too hard. And you're not, you're not big, fast or strong enough or whatever. And I, I bet them, uh, and I joined the Navy the next day, you know, on a bet that I couldn't become a Navy SEAL. And, uh, look who would have, you know, who would have thought that would end up with me doing that for nearly 12 years before I got hurt. And the Navy decided I, I couldn't do it anymore. So I enlisted in the Navy on a bet. Um, I finished that year of college and uh, joined the, you know, I joined the Navy that next day and I was on the delayed entry and I shipped out, you know, before, you know, that basically that coming fall and went on to do 12 years. Um, like you said, I I'd mentioned in our intro that, I never seen the ocean, never saw the ocean before, you know, literally before SEAL training. And my, my, my thought was, uh, my only real experience or 
I guess my perception of the ocean was based on the show Baywatch. So I'm like, oh, it's like, it's sunny and it looks pretty warm and how hard can it be? And as you know, the Pacific Ocean is not so warm um, and cold water is what makes most people quit SEAL training. So that, you know, that was kind of an eye opener. Uh, I think, I think I told you it was the third time, but as I reflect, it may have been the fourth time that I got on an airplane in my life, I was wearing a parachute. So I'd never, you know, I'd never taken a flight anywhere. Uh, I'd never until I joined the Navy. And then I took a flight to boot camp, a flight to another school, a flight to jump school, which was in Fort Benning, Georgia. So that's three. And then the fourth time I got on an airplane, I was wearing a a parachute. So you have this, you know, a kid from a cornfield in Iowa who enlisted in the Navy on a bet, uh, who's never seen the ocean, dumb enough to raise my hand when they ask who's never seen the ocean. Um, I raised my hand and they went and surf tortured me for like long enough to give me hypothermia. So uh, I guess I'm kind of rambling, but uh, it was a steep learning curve. <laughs> oh my goodness. I mean, a, a lot of kids are out there watching the Navy commercials. The recruiters are cruising around the high school campus everywhere you look. Uh, but that journey from in, deciding to enlist and then getting to SEAL training, I imagine uh, that's there's some way to distinguish yourself really quickly. So how did that go from the time you enlisted? And also, did you inform your football coaches that you were dumping them for for the Navy yeah. SEALs? Yeah. So I did tell I did tell my coach, and they were I you know I wasn't that great in college football. I was uh, I was really good in high school, uh, but I played in small town, right? So big fish, small pond situation. I had met uh, in the spring, we have spring football, and I met with my college football coach. And they're like, hey, we're going to, you know, we'll offer you a little scholarship this year. I said, thanks, but no thanks. Uh, I'm going to join the Navy and become a SEAL. Of course, that was, he was like, whatever, you'll never make it. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, part of it was, you know, a chip on my shoulder. I'm going to prove them wrong. Uh, really, that's probably most of it. And, uh, you know, I was not really sure what I was going to do. And I, you know, that was the first time I was certain that I wanted to to do something. And then when I joined, uh, it was pre-9-11, so it would have been 1998. Um, and there was not the wealth of knowledge that we have now from all the books and the websites and things like that. So, you know, I got a little pamphlet from my recruiter. and. Uh, proceeded to, you know, run a lot on the gravel roads. And, you know, I didn't really have a gym. So I would do push, you know, push ups in the barn. And then I did kind of Rocky style. I didn't have a pull up bar. I just did tons of pull ups on the rafters in the barn. And, uh, you know, it all worked out. Um, We our our buds class uh, started with around 190 people, 187. This is the the budding SEAL members. So they have to go through. It's selection to become a SEAL. So it's BUDS, which stands for Basic Underwater Demolition SEAL Training. Um, And you're not a SEAL when you finish it, but it is the hardest part of becoming a SEAL. 
Uh, so how do you become one of those 190 out of thousands of enlists? Good. Um, so you nowadays, you, when you do that, you can have that, you can have a guarantee um, to become one of those 190 huh? if, you, if you pass certain tests prior to joining. Um, I didn't even have that. I had a, I had to take a test in, in boot camp. And if I passed that test in boot camp, I could be one of the, one of those who showed up, uh, to, to try out. And sure enough, I, I was, so, um, was it a pretty rigorous test, uh, physical challenges or you know, multiple tr- choice questions? Are you sure you want to do this? <laughs> True yeah. or false? That kind of thing? The, the test then, and I don't, I'm not sure what it is now, it's not really that hard. You had to be able to do, you know, like 11 pull-ups and 50 push-ups. And it's not, it wasn't relative. Huh. It wasn't that hard. You had a one and a half mile run and some other you know, a swim test, some sit-ups. It's not, it's, it, it was not representative of, of the fitness that would be required of you, you know, to make it through Bud's training. Um, like in Bud's training, you are, the thing that hurts people the most is the running. And, you know, outside of your normal workouts, your body weight calisthenics, your log PT, your O course, your two mile ocean swims or your weekly timed runs every day you are running to and from chow three times a day, one mile each way. So you get six, six miles of running without working out just to eat. And that leads to a lot of, lot of, uh, lower extremity, you know, overuse, uh, you know, kind of like, um, stress fractures below the knee. Right. Um, so you have to kind of work into it. So you, you do have to put the miles in running wise. Uh, but you know, by the, you have to eventually be able to do at least 20 pull-ups, 120, you know, sit-ups, 120 push-ups in a row, you know, running a four mile run, you know, in soft sand in like 27 minutes. Uh, I forgot what the time is on the, on the ocean swim, which is, you know, there's no line on the bottom of the ocean to kind of follow. So you're kind of zigzagging everywhere. Uh, so it was, you know, it was definitely not, uh, wasn't quite what I expected. So you get out there to Bud's training and the attrition rate is extremely high. Do you have figures on that for how many of that 187 completed? So in our, uh, I think, I think statistically it's anywhere from 20 to 25% make it through in the, uh, I think that number, obviously there's some fluctuation. Uh, I think that's the statistic average. And, uh, you know, the Navy has spent millions of dollars trying to understand what makes someone more likely to make it through and what, and uh, whether it's psychology testing or, you know, different fitness tests. And they, they've determined they can't figure it out. And, oh, but uh, Richard Gere solved that question decades ago. Right. He said he had no other place to go. Yeah. <laughs> that was brilliant. Yeah. They can't, you know, they can't, you can't measure heart, right? Um, so they really have spent a, a lot of, of time and energy 
doing uh, obviously the physical challenges you you need someone yep. who's not overweight and uh lazy but right. it, it, it seems like they could lock into some personality profiles and and I check you out for an hour when you when you show up in coronado there is there are some personality profiles um you know as part of your selection and your training and then the longer you stay in the more kind of you know you do have personality profiling and things like that for different assignments. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, the, I don't know why, but it's really whether people lie on tests or whatever, you cannot, you cannot measure toughness on a piece of paper. Uh, I, our class started that 190, you know, about 180, 190 people or 187. And six months later, um, there were 19 of us left who made it through. So almost, you know, right at the 10% mark, we had 22 that total graduated and only 19 of them were from that original 190 that started. So we had a couple of rollbacks uh, and, and it just, you know, it's just hard. (laughs) Wow. That's fascinating because if you could kind of bottle up those uh, character attributes it would apply to the business world, to hiring and firing and all that wonderful stuff, because certainly right. the physical challenges are the things people fixate on. Uh, right. But I know from talking to, um, you know, guys that didn't make it through and whatnot, it kind of it kind of goes beyond uh, how strong of an ocean swimmer you are. Absolutely. If you if you took a, a group photo of 190 or, who you know, of us that started and you said, all right, take your shirts off. We're going to circle the, you know, on this photo, the, you know, the 10 or 20% that is going to make it through training. You'd get it. You'd get some right. You'd get some wrong. Like some looked, some of them looked like they were going to make it, you know, they're ripped and others you would have never guessed. Right. And if you're, Jeez, man, maybe you should have stayed with football. You would have been like Julian Edelman, you right. know, five ten, one eighty two, catching passes in the Super Bowl, and getting, getting open uh, past these, you know, athletic freaks that are trying to guard them. Incredible. Right. Maybe, maybe make a little more money and get blown up a few less times. So. <laughs> wow. So in, in your personal experience, I mean, what do you think was your, your winning formula. I, I'm sure that uh, after a while, you didn't care about the guy in the dorm and the 50 bucks or the hundred bucks, uh, nor the football coach who, who told you you wouldn't make it. Because I think right. those are, um, we call those extrinsic motivators, right? And the right. psychologists uh, validate that those are not as powerful as right. someone who's motivated intrinsically. Uh, and, sure. and you called it heart or whatever you want to call it. Well, I think there's a couple of different factors. You know, one of them being uh, you know, I'm the oldest of four, but, uh, I have, and I've always been a type and driven and, um, but my two little brothers are like significantly bigger than me. So that, that might've given me a chip on my shoulder. Um, I'm also, when I decided to join, um, you know, the Navy, most people said I couldn't do it. Uh, and then my dad was like, oh, you can do that and you would be great at it. Wow. So that, that, a perfect yeah. blend, you know, you got <laughs> right. the naysayers. It, it's like, uh, it's like Rocky, 
you know, yep. all the naysayers within the guy in his corner saying, you know, hit him in the ribs, Rock. Yep. And then you need a guy in your corner, man. I love it. Thanks, Dad. It was uh, very powerful when I told him, and he's like, "Oh, I think you could do that. I think you do great job at it." And then uh, also, you know, I'm from a small town, a very small town, and most of the people there are, you know, there's people from all shapes and sizes and from all around, you know, the U.S. Uh, but you know, I graduated high school with about 30 people, and uh, you, know, you know, my parents still live in a very small town. And unlike people from a large town, you know, I didn't have any anonymity. So if you're from New York City or L.A. and whatever, and you don't make it, like your family will know about it. A couple of friends will know about it, but no one else will know. My, you know, my town would have known. And my, like, we're a close family, but that town is small, too. Uh, when I graduated Hell Week, there was like a sign on the, there there was, it was written on the bank sign that I had made it through Hell Week. So there was also some healthy, you know, small towns are not all bad, right? There's some good and some bad with it, but there's no, part of it was I could not, there was no way I was going to go back, you know, with my tail between my legs, having not made it, if that makes sense. Wow, that's that's heavy, man. I, I've never really thought about it that way. Yeah. And a lot of times we think the the small town is this isolating experience, a slight disadvantage when you head off to the big university. Uh, but this is this is pretty uh, pretty strong. I, I interviewed someone on the podcast named Amanda Renteria. She was a candidate for uh, the governor of California. And she told her story of coming from a small farming town, a yep. daughter of uh, first-generation Mexican immigrant farm workers, and she went off to Stanford. And you know, she was she was going to succeed no matter what because they had you know so many hopes and yep. kind of you know respect riding on someone who actually made it out and, and went off to this mythical place called Stanford. And it was <laughs> yeah. you know you think about that compared to. Um, you know, the kid whose parents wrote a check to the uh, the, the new uh, biology building so they could get their kid in and everything was privileged and entitled. And um, boy, now we're talking about intrinsic motivation. You know, you had your, you're carrying your town on your shoulders. It was that, I mean, there was definitely a piece of that. There was a, a piece of the, you know, my, my family, my town and, you know, all that sort of stuff. I was not going to you know, I was going to, I literally passed a kidney stone in hell week, which are like two of the, two of kind of the hardest things I can think of. Hell week pretty hard. <laughs> you and, got it out of the way during hell week instead of on vacation. Right. It would have ruined yeah. your vacation, but Hey, why not? Let's just do it in hell week. And I didn't know what it was. I was, you know, the Navy diagnosed it as IBS, right? Like oh whatever. my goodness. So, Oh, you just have IBS here. Take this, whatever. And I'm, you know, hell week is essentially it's five days nonstop. You get a couple of 15 or 20 minute naps. Um, you're hallucinating and you're walking and running everywhere and you just can't, it just, it's nonstop. And on about Wednesday night, Wednesday afternoon, my, I started to get some, some pain in my flank and, uh, you know, found out later it was, uh, then I was a kidney stone. And anyway, I was either 
you know, maybe I wasn't smart enough to quit. Maybe I should have, but I was not going to. <laughs> I'm sure everyone's saying, oh, wait till you get to hell week. It's super painful. You'll be doubled over in pain. And yeah, there's right. Eric uh, trying to pass a kidney stone thinking it's thinking it's normal. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, anyway, so, and at the end of hell week, a, it, it, as if it's not hard enough, you, uh, you go and you get a medical check at the doctor and it's not a full week. It's only five days, but they call it hell week. And on Friday afternoon, after they, they check you out at the doctor, uh, before you go back to your barracks room and then you sleep until like Saturday afternoon to get caught up. And they tell you, don't leave base. Your immune system is jacked up. You know, you can't, you, we have to monitor you for the next 24 hours and make sure you're okay. Cause of edema and all sorts of, you know, other issues. And I'm sitting there and, and so you're wet all week in hell week. And, uh, and I was kind of between sizes on boots and they, they recommend getting a, a smaller boot size because your feet are going to be wet all week. And if you get too big of a boot, you know, you're going to get a blister. So I'm in a boot and it, I don't get a blister, but my, um, my big toenails hurt and they pull my boots off. They had to remove both of my big toenails. Um, the day hell week got over. And so there I am walking back to the barracks with my new boots in my hands, walking barefoot on the asphalt. I'm pleased to present B-Rad grass-fed whey protein isolate superfuel, the absolute highest quality all-natural protein supplement infused with creatine that delivers everything you need to optimize your appetite for fat loss, recover quickly from workouts, and build and maintain lean muscle mass, the single most important attribute for aging gracefully. Our protein comes directly from small family farms in America's dairy land of Wisconsin. It's cold processed and micro filtered for maximum bioavailability and digestibility. So please don't mess with the many cheap commodity protein supplements that are ineffective, inferior, less pure, and often contain junk sweeteners, especially the plant-based offerings that are vastly less bioavailable than the gold standard of protein supplements that's whey protein isolate. Whether you're in your peak athletic years looking to grow and recover or in the older age groups trying to delay aging and decline, whey and creatine are widely agreed to be the most critical and effective supplements to take for the rest of your life. You can easily stir the superfuel in water or make a delicious smoothie every day. I'm certain that you're going to love the pleasant, light, natural vanilla bean and cocoa bean flavors. So try some on Amazon today. It's a huge hit with dozens of five-star reviews. Or you can order direct from bradnutrition.com with our buy three, get one free, and make the super fuel a centerpiece of your daily routine. With my toenails removed, and I'm like, does this, I mean, I was just laughing at how uh, how absurd that is, right? <laughs> it's just hard. Oh, mercy. You're like the... Um... Uh, Daniel Craig in the James Bond movie where he's he's laughing while they're torturing him because they he's not going to let him get the better of him. Right, right. So in your experience, did you have some uh, occasions of soul searching? I mean, they're trying to break you and 
I wonder, you know, did you get, did you come close to that? Or what is the mindset like of a, a person who succeeds through there? Is there just zero doubt? You don't allow yourself any, um, any backup plan? Yeah, I, I had, I did, uh, you know, I burnt the boat when I landed on the shore and I was going to make it or they were going to, the only way I wasn't going to make it was, uh, and this happens a lot. Like people I would say who would, you know, would have been a better seal than I was just didn't make it through because they got hurt. So right. there is, there's uh, plenty. David of, Goggins talks about that, right? Yeah. He had his stress fractures and that's it. There's plenty of luck involved, like, you know, not getting hurt. Um, and there's, there's a few acute injuries like falling off of a, something on the obstacle course or, you know, mo- some, some acute injuries, but most of the injuries are just overuse injuries. So and people kind of get rolled back or whatever the case may be. Uh, so really that was, uh, that was how I was going to go out was if I got hurt because quitting was certainly not an option and it never actually, it never entered my mind. So I don't. <laughs> now, would you say that your 19 fellow graduates, do you think they all had that exact mindset? I think most of them would have. Uh, I'm not, I can't speak to that for sure, but I, I believe that to be true. I think that at least most of them, and maybe maybe a couple of them got close. And they didn't, you know, they didn't quit. But the thing about that is um, SEAL training is hard and it takes forever, you know, six plus months to make it through. And then you make it onto a team and there are, you know, everyone, there's an expression, everyone wants to be a SEAL uh, on Friday night at the bar, but no one wants to be a SEAL, you know, Tuesday night when, you know, you're doing training that's cold, wet, tired, and makes you hungry and all that sort of thing, right? Like there are days, whether it's training or combat, where you're going to be as cold or more cold, as tired or more tired than you were in SEAL training. So that's really, that's why they make it so hard. They just want people that, you know, don't know how to quit. Um, You mentioned the cold water is kind of the leading uh the leading cause of dropping out the leading of the leading offender <laughs> uh so what do we need to learn the wim hof techniques immediately to i mean wh- why is that the thing that that gets people and i guess um if you're going to get hypothermic do you feel like there is some mindset factors that can help you there i think so i mean i I think there's some mind, you know, mindset training, uh, you know, going kind of just going somewhere else in your head, maybe, um, thinking about good things, um, or trying not to think about warm things because that makes it worse. Uh, really? But yeah, I, and I, I, I don't even, I don't know. I know there's some efficacy with, you know, the Wim Hof training and resistance to the cold. Um, I think that would probably help. I don't, I, I'm not sure. I think they would get you, I mean, they'll get you to the point where you will have hypothermia anyway. (laughs) You'll be like, hold hold on, (laughs) uh, hold on. I got two more minutes of my breathing drills before I can enter the ocean, sir. Can you please wait? Oh, I can't go in yet. I'm not done with my, my, my sequences. 
And one thing that was, that helped me out. Um, I wasn't the best runner. Uh, I wasn't the best swimmer. I couldn't do the most push-ups or the most pull-ups and I couldn't do the obstacle course the fastest, but on all of those things, I was in the top five to 10%. So I never, I never won anything, but I was always, I was always in the, in the top finishers of all of those. So very much a generalist. And there were people who were amazing runners who were just too too skinny or whatever, couldn't do the pull-ups, right? Or the push-ups. And then there would be great swimmers who might not be as good at running or, or a, a gymnast style body, a, you know, a smaller guy who was super ripped, who could just zoom through the obstacle course, but couldn't run as efficiently because they were shorter or couldn't swim. And they, maybe they were too dense and they sunk. Right. So it really helped me, um, you know, I never failed a single physical event in all of Bud's, but I also never won one of them. And uh, that made a big difference. Oh my gosh, you're telling the exact description of a successful triathlete competitor, uh, especially when we get to the level of the pro circuit where if you are, are outstanding in a single event, by definition, it means that you're weak in another one because you're racing at the world-class level. And so... Uh, you had to manage all those things in, in such that you would have no weaknesses to the extent that I came into triathlon as a runner in college and high school. So I was that skinny runner guy that could run circles around the track. And I right. all of a sudden towing the line with all American NCAA swimmers with that physique and their whole, their whole background. And so I had to get worse and worse in running because I had to train my brains out in swimming. But then once you adapt to, in, in my case, all three, you had a little more than just swimming, biking and running straight ahead uh but that's you know that's a that's a great insight is you you by definition have to work those weaknesses so that you can be strong in everything and i yeah. guess imagine someone who's who's really weak in a certain certain area it's going to be so exhausting fatiguing for them to get through the pull-ups that they're gonna they're gonna yep. suffer on the other seven events right and uh you know swimming is swimming to me like was you know i tend to sink a little bit a uh, little bit negative. Um, it was all about kind of relaxing and learning how to kind of plane out, uh, you know, that kind of, we did some, I had the total immersion book and like tried to practice some of that. It, it's more of a skill. Like for me, I've always been a good runner, you know, certainly not world-class, but uh, running was something I could do well. Uh, but swimming Swimming was one of those things where if you tried harder, it, you didn't necessarily do better. <laughs> oh, mercy. It's so technique dependent that, you know, in, in coaching uh, recreational triathletes for many years, there comes a point where if your technique is not efficient, you probably shouldn't even practice because you're refining poor technique and making it harder and harder to break through. You should probably just stay home and watch total immersion videos Yep. So you're saying you got the total immersion book. I'm curious. Uh, I imagine this, the, the SEAL training is much more sophisticated than you might go and see the boot camp where the kids are coming out of high school and, and trying to get them in shape. Uh, but is it still kind of um, a few steps back from 
you know, the highest level of athletic performance that you'd find in the Olympic training center. Cause I, I don't like the idea of taking fit, motivated individuals and giving them stress fractures. That seems ridiculous because you're right. losing out on superior talent just sure. because you're overtraining them. Well, and I, I think, you know, they have to, there's a different goal when it comes to seal training, uh, selection. And the goal is, you know, we're talking about people who are going to go into combat with, uh, you know, with their brothers in arms to their right and their left. And the number one goal is not that they're fit. The number one goal is to make sure that this is a person who with his dying breath will do everything to accomplish the mission. And so the goal of the Olympic training center is to create super athletes. And, uh, and if I was going to get someone in shape, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't send them to Bud's training. There are better, <laughs> you're going to, you're going to loop, you're going to leave a little worse off, right? You might oh, get real mercy. Sick, but, yeah. you know, but the goal is not that like after Bud's, you take some time off, you change your training completely in how you want to prepare for a combat deployment, right? Uh -huh. Especially nowadays, because a combat deployment, you might be wearing body armor, you're doing these long, you know, hikes, maybe. Uh, it's not important to be able to do a run, swim, run type thing. But the goal of Bud's training is not to get them fit. It's 100%, um, you know, to make sure that that guy to your right and left would rather die than quit. Okay, so there now you lost me. So far in, in, in our interview here, I'm, I'm dreaming of myself back in my triathlon day where I could swim two miles every morning, no problem, and probably right. beat everybody there. I could do the obstacle course. I could do the running. Uh, but if my shin hurts, man, I'm going to be crying in the <laughs> office. I can't yeah. run anymore. I have a touch spot. It's, it's a hot spot. I need a bone scan. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, if, and if you're training for an athletic goal, like those are the days like, you know, I look at my heart rate variability. Oh, I'm a little bit sore. Like I subscribe to your method of training now. Right. I am, I am a, you can imagine a seal and many of us are, are probably really good at overdoing it. Um, I think most of, I believe most of the injuries I have come from not just acute things, but just from me hurting myself in a gym. Right. So I, I and my goals have changed. Like now I'm 42. My goal now is when I'm 50, like some of the things you mentioned, can I run a, can I run a, a, a one minute, you know, lap around a track or a eight minute mile or do 50 pushups, things like that with new goals. I'm like, I'm kind of looking at my heart rate variability, checking how I feel and, and really not pushing it as hard or doing like a sprint day and then. Uh, a slow day or a heavy kettlebell mm -hmm. day and then a, you know a relaxing day so it's a different now it's different <laughs> hey you, you've been there and done that man you're allowed to take care of your body now yes great insight hey i wonder if they've ever done like a a, a stunt or, or something where you know a guy like ashton eaton comes to town and and is put through the the program. You know, he's the the world record uh, Olympic decathlete. I mean, right. if you had a physical marvel there who was just uh, showing that everything was doable or, or or something like that. We had um it wasn't my class, it was the class before mine. And they had a so they had an Olympic decathlete. Uh he was an alternate 
for the Olympic decathlon. And um, he was, you know, up through first phase, he had the fastest swim time, the fastest run time. He could do the most push-ups, pull-ups, and sit-ups. He could, there were things on the obstacle course that, you know, us mere mortals could, it could take us 60 to 90 seconds to go through. And he could almost hurdle them, right? Because he was a, he was a mutant. And there were, there were people like that. And ultimately on the physical things, they always, they always won, but the the instructors will break you. (laughs) And, and the more gifted you are, the less likely you've been broken or you've failed in your life to that point. And they don't handle it as well. Wow. And, or it's been, things have come a little easier to them. And, uh, throughout the second hour of co-op they're like absolutely worth it so you really you have to want to really want to do it to endure all of that because no matter how fit you are if you were the most fit person in the world whatever you use to measure that and you could do i don't know 100 push or 100 pull-ups in a row they would make you do 120 right they're just going to push you past that point and it, it just becomes, you know, you will break. It's just a matter of how can you deal with it. So, Oh, my gosh. I, I just heard Tom Brady uh, talking about, you know, how does this guy make it 23 years in the NFL? He was the 197th pick in the draft the year he was right. drafted. Right. When he got to, you know, he, he was underdog in high school. He didn't start till his senior year. And he said that at every level, he was obligated to compete because he wasn't that superstar uh, from day one, which most of the guys in the NFL, most of the guys are. at Division One, they never had to struggle. They never had to worry about the, the backup, you know, beating them out and all that kind of thing. And he was that guy that had to compete every single level. And that's what, it, you know, he, he attributes as uh, part of his longevity and success formula that he wasn't afraid to compete. And he was yeah. constantly in that position rather than the golden boy. Obviously, you know, in, in recent years, he, you know, he, he's owned, the, you know, he's run the team. Right. But, you know, to get to that point where he's probably still not taking it for granted, obviously, because he's training his body at a higher level and all that great stuff. Yeah. I- Greetings, my fitness minded listeners. I want to acquaint you with the Primal Fitness Expert Certification Program, the most comprehensive home study multimedia fitness education course in the world. If you want to enhance your personal knowledge of all aspects of leading a healthy, active, fit lifestyle, this total immersion course will be life-changing. I'm the lead instructor and author of the course, and we have 14 chapters of extensive written content with over 100 accompanying videos covering topics such as general everyday movement, including micro-workouts and dynamic workstation tips, the full experience of gym-based strength training and all the different modalities, a complete presentation on all aspects of sprinting, both running and low impact options, an assortment of high intensity interval training and high intensity repeat training strategies 
a detailed education on the principles and practical application of aerobic endurance training, and extensive commentary, the most you will find in any publication, on all aspects and symptoms of overtraining and burnout. We even have fascinating peripheral topics like integrating nasal diaphragmatic breathing, dynamic stretching, injury prevention, and developing a peak performance mindset. It's really something, this course. We went all out for over two years with a great team to develop this amazing home-based fitness education for you. And you get one-on-one expert email support and private Facebook group connection throughout your studies to ensure that you absorb everything optimally and you pass your series of exams and get certified. So go to primalhealthcoach.com slash Brad to enjoy a very special limited time. And I'm not kidding. This is a big time discount just for you. 25% off your tuition. A fantastic premium offer at primalhealthcoach.com slash Brad for the most comprehensive fitness course you can ever find. I think there's some definite truth to that. I mean, I don't begrudge people who are talented. Um, I mean, I'm sometimes jealous of that. Uh, but if you're, you know, if you didn't have that struggle at some point, um, eventually you're going to, and, uh, it helped, you know, the more that you've overcome, uh, the better, it's almost like that is a skill that you can learn, uh, to overcome things. Right. Yeah. And I, I remember I've written about this before because you talk about uh, natural talent so much in sports and in triathlon. Uh, one of these guys, Mike Pig, who was one of the, the greatest of all time at Olympic distance, probably the probably the, the best ever. And if you look at him and his background, he wasn't naturally talented in any of the sports. He was a mid-level runner from a small town competing against, you know, division one guys who had evolved over to triathlete. Uh, but what I identified in training with him was he had an incredible talent for getting up every day and getting out the door without his brain or his, his, you know, human frailties getting in the way. He was just talented because he could go all day, wake up the next day and recovery is a talent too. And it was, you know, it was an off the charts talent, just like the guy who uh, picks up a bike and three months later he can uh, win a time trial. So there's different forms of talent. And I think that whatever you just described, that mental talent, that, you know, resiliency is definitely something that, hey, maybe you were born with it, just like the guy who was born uh, with size 14 flipper feet, like Michael Phelps, you know? Right. A buddy of mine said the other day, and I wrote it down and I I put it into my Evernote because it really, it hit home with me. you know, the only, the only superpower I have is superhuman will. I have nothing like no other. I mean, I've, I, you know, I'm in shape now and, uh, there's certain things I can do maybe that others can't, but that's just from hard work. Right. I just have, uh, and many seals do and many successful people do. It has, it's not, it's not necessarily the physical talents, uh, or the mental talents or whatever it is. It's just superhuman will. Uh, so the superhuman will took you to a 12-year career, which seems like kind of a long time to be an active SEAL. I don't know what the average is, but you're out there, man, getting deployed left and right. Tell us what the career is like with the, the, the deployments, and then you go back to training or you have time off. I, I'm also wondering, like, you did all that hard work. You made it through Bud's training. Everyone wants to be a SEAL. 
besides yeah. the cred at the bar on Friday night? Uh, do you have other benefits in terms of your military career? I don't know. Do the SEALs get paid more? <laughs> or you know, why do, why do people right. want to suffer so bad if all you got is a tagline on Friday night? Sure. No, I, uh, you know, it, there's, I guess that's, I mean, that could be a whole episode, but the, um, it, I, I did 12 years roughly. Um, I would have done 20 had I not gotten medically retired. Uh, so I had some, I had, uh, an injury in combat as well as some, uh, uh, long-term overuse injuries plus the uh, discovery of a, a long-term medical condition that all kind of built up to me getting a medical retirement. And um, I, so the Navy deemed me no longer fit for duty. And I, you know, got out basically at the very end of 2009 and, um, and up to that point, you know, I had served at uh, SEAL teams uh, on both the West Coast and then the East Coast and deployed numerous times. Um, my first deployment was started two weeks before 9-11. And uh, I got I was in the jungle area and then we got shipped off to the desert because of, you know, 9-11. Uh, and then I did a number of other, you know, deployments. Um, and got married, had kids, uh, towards the end, the last, you know, the last five years of my career, you know, I was gone anywhere from 250 to 280 days a year, whether I either training or deployed. Uh, I didn't even, I, I didn't even put enough miles on my vehicle in five years to get an oil change. <laughs> so when I went to get, look at my odometer in five years, I had put like you know, 2000 miles on my car. So, uh, that, that's why they put that, that sticker on there that says 3000 miles or, or 90 days. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Is that, uh, that sounds extreme for a, a, a military person to be gone that long. Is that unique to the seals? I think it was unique to the seals, uh, or special ops in particular, uh, with, you know, at the time and the, the, you know, it's called the op temple or the operational tempo and the deployment cycles and the needs of these of what we were doing the you know the type of missions we were able to do and you know granted they are shorter deployments than uh you know an infantry guy at the you know at the time might be gone 18 months and i might do a you know a four four to a nine month deployment depending on you know on the thing but then when i was back i was you know it was always we trained really hard too uh, you know, we could, could be any sort of thing, you know, a couple of weeks of parachute jumping and then a couple of weeks of this, that, or the other, just lots of, uh, lots of travel, lots of training. And, you know, it's, uh, it, it, it has come at a high cost, you know, to the community, just special operations forces in general. So few of, you know, so few people doing so much, um, you know, they don't, they don't really know, they haven't really quantified that yet. Right. But it's uh, between, you know, between all the, you know, the different wars and then all the all the all the travel, all the training, obviously the the mental side of combat, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, so then you um, went into 
the life of leisure in a rocking chair after you uh, were were discharged, or right. maybe not, huh? You you went for some. <laughs> you had to keep that uh, competitive bug going. So I want to hear about the things you got into uh, on the next step of life. Um, the after so after I left the military. Um, and I did those climbs, by the way, Brad, when I was in. So oh, okay. That, Let's that take, was, take the listener back to that. Okay. So we had mentioned this on our, you know, prior to starting, uh, but I was, um, I was kind of pigeonholed into becoming a lead climber. Um, when I showed up at one of my new teams, I, I could do more pull-ups than the other new guy. So my team leader was like, okay. He's going to go do this job as a you know collateral duty, and he looked at me and he said, "I'd like you to be our lead climber." And I was like, "Okay." I didn't know anything about rock climbing um, or climbing in general, so I did a. Um, it's very it's it's a it's similar to the theme we talked about steep learning curves. I did four days of rock climbing out at Red, uh, Red Rocks in Las Vegas as my first trip. And, uh, and the next time I did a rock climbing trip to Australia, um, I think it was called Mount Arapiles, um, or Arapali. And so at this point I have like eight days of rock climbing under my belt. And, uh, then the, the lead climber of the whole team was like, Hey, we're taking a group and we're going to El Cap. And we're going to climb El Cap. And I was kind of nervous. I was like, what is that? It's like, I looked it up. It's this big wall. It takes days, right? So I kind of, I got pigeonholed and went and climbed El Cap. And so the ninth time in my life of, of putting on a sit harness to actually climb rock was the first training day on El Cap. And, you know, granted, we, you know, we had a team of two or three and we had a guide. But we climbed all the pitches except two, which were like really, really hard. And then that guy climbed those. Uh, but the rest of it, we climbed and it took, uh, we spent two days or two nights sleeping on the side of the mountain or the wall in those cots called portal ledges. And then the third night we slept on the top because we had summited. So um, that was uh, that was a trip. Uh, and we actually, the, the route we did was called the tangerine, tangerine trip. So you're relatively inexperienced, but you're a strong guy. You're, you've conquered your fears in many ways. Um, what were the main challenges of doing that? Was it, was it physically difficult to climb for that long? It was pretty physically difficult. Um, just cause you're, you know, we're used to walking and running around and stuff. And then now you're in a sit harness all day and you're, it's a different, you know, technique. Um, uh, but just mentally, just the mental aspect of, even if you're like thousand foot up on a wall and we're climbing together and I, I just hand you a water bottle, you know, I hand it to you this way and I wait for you to get two hands on it before I let go. Cause every, like everything you do is like, is epic when you're that high, like every simple thing is, you know, Oh, I have to go to the bathroom. Like, uh, how, like, how do you do that? Like every movement you make is, you know, can become catastrophic. So mentally 
I mean, the, the adrenaline dump when you're done with that is like off the charts. So everyone's pumped up watching Alex Honnold free solo that thing. I think you bumped into him uh, during your trip there. Uh, but if you do make a mistake and you slip off, I guess you're going to uh, fall a bit and then get jerked by the rope. Uh, what, I mean, what are the consequences and what, what kind of bummer is that? Yeah, if you fall um, onto your rope, then you'll be held by your, the protection or the pieces you placed in the rock. Um, so really the mental challenge is when you're putting your pieces in the rock, your little rock climbing pieces, your protection, just the mental aspect of placing it. And you're like, is that going to hold? And you're like, I hope so. And you move on to the next one and, and you don't really find out until you fall and you don't really, <laughs> you don't really want to. <laughs> so, um, and just the night, like the first night I spent 600 700 feet up off the deck sleeping on a portal ledge three or four foot away from the wall because it was more than vertical so my little portal ledge was not even touching the wall it was just spinning in the wind you're just hanging out yeah uh it was uh it was definitely um you know one of the more scary things i did for sure so <laughs> really Alex, it, go ahead. it got you scared being being up there even even though you can tell your brain your brain say hey i'm safe these these things are steady it's yep. still a little bit uh, unnerving for a navy seal huh for me it was you know having not really you know I, I, like at least when you're parachuting you got tons of little ropes hanging holding you on to a uh, you know a canopy but like rock climbing you have one rope and it's you know holding your world right so um uh, little bit more and i kept thinking about it like i would think about it that way and then i would just put it you know i put everything aside and you know rock climbing it is is really cool it teaches you to only focus on the moment because that's all you can do like you have to focus on this piece this move this piece this and and that you know you can't really worry about the ones you already placed or the you know or the next pitch you really stay present. And I think Alex talks about that in his, uh, obviously he's in some crazy flow state climbing that thing without a rope. So, <laughs> Yeah, the most amazing insight I got from the documentary Free Solo, and it had, it had to come in my second viewing of it. I think I've seen it four times now. It's just, uh, I call it the greatest athletic achievement of all time in the history of humanity with, with no one near, near in second place. Usain Bolt was up there, Tiger Woods, winning the U.S. Open by 15 strokes is up there, but that was just stunning. Uh, but I saw him in the middle with his little uh, comp book writing about his moves. And yep. I realized then that he has memorized the whole bloody thing so that, you know, his first, his first leg up on the mountain is uh, his, his toes touching the, the protruding bump. And then he reaches over with his right hand and grabs on a little shelf and he, he knows the entire route. And that was the real mind blower that, you know, he's memorized this to that extent. And so, you know, the word free implies that he's just looking on this rock. Where is he going to go next? Like the guy in the climbing gym. But this was something altogether even more impressive that it was that, you know, deliberate and, and methodical. You know, we don't, uh, we always had an expression with our, so with our training, uh, and obviously it was different, but it's combat style training. Um, 
Like we believed that we, we didn't rise to the occasion. We fell to our level of preparation and look at his, his level of preparation was beyond compare, right? He had, he had memorized, he had scripted that entire thing. Not only had he done that, he had physically done every piece of it, right? You know, with, with the ropes. Rope. Yeah. Right. So practicing training, no surprises for him. Right. He, you know, and he did the work before that point, even to think about that accomplishment. Right. He didn't just think, oh, I'm going to go, I can rock climb a little bit. I think I'm going to go try free soloing El Cap. He, I mean, the amount of work he did, we all, we all look at the, you know, the video and what he did and like, oh, he must be a mutant. And he obviously is crazy, but he, uh, you know, he definitely fell to his level of training. Um, he did more amount, you know, more work than you can't even capture the hours that he did in a, you know, whatever, a 90 minute documentary. That would be my, that would be my guess. Right. The, um, the guy that, uh, that, that wants to be a seal on, on Tuesday morning as well as Friday night. Right. Right. Oh, it's been so fascinating talking about this journey. I do want to talk about your climbing the high peaks cause that's a whole nother world. Yeah. So um, this was also while you were in the service. Yes. So tell us about those climbs and was that part of training or was this sort of like when you had a six week leave, you're going to go climb one of the highest peaks in the world. What happened there? So, yeah, I was, like I said, I was a, you know, lead climber, um, in my, in my little team. And, um, we, you know, we're increasingly doing some high altitude stuff or mountaineering stuff in Afghanistan and things like that. Uh, and a friend of mine, um, who, you know, he ended up dying, um, but he had this vision, uh, his name was Heath Robinson. Uh, he had this vision, um, after we did El Cap, he's like, well, that's enough of big wall climbing. Let's go do some mountains. And, uh, his vision was to do, you know, the seven summits. So we went and, uh, we, uh, we climbed, uh, Denali, um, and then that was in 2008. And then we climbed Aconcagua in 2009, uh, which were, which are the highest peaks in North and South America. And, uh, we, uh, we had an opportunity to work with, uh, some really awesome guides on those. Uh, we climbed Denali with Mark Twight, um, famous, uh, mountaineer and mountain guide, uh, and with his group, um, and the guide in particular on Aconcagua was a guy named Rolo Garabuti. So we had these awesome guides. We had awesome guides on, uh, on El Cap as well, obviously. Um, but we got to do these climbs and uh, do a whole different thing, this mountaineering thing. And, uh, you know, it, for me, that was a lot more fun, even though probably mentally not as hard at least the routes we took they were not the super technical routes they were more like grinded out less technical more endurance routes but uh yeah it was uh it was very cool experience are you telling me you took the easy route up denali is that what you're trying to say here i i would it (laughs) technically is the easiest route up denali uh but it you know it's still there were times where it's 30 below inside your tent um, with no wind. So it's, uh, you know, it can, it Denali is still hard. 
Um, I, I'm kind of seeing that as like a show title, you know, the, the easy route up Denali and other life challenges or something. <laughs> yeah. How about that? The easy, yeah. right? Yeah. The easy, that is great. Uh, now were you, were you in a novice in uh, high mountaineering when you, yes. when you set off on these trips too? Yeah, that was, uh, you know, I had no, you know, I'm. He went to Pikes Peak in Denver, uh, and Denver and put, <laughs> put a flag that. up, and then headed to Alaska. No, I hadn't even done that. I hadn't done any mountaineering trips. You know, I'm a flatlander from Iowa who moved, moved. You know, to the east. You know, at that time I was living uh, at sea level on the east coast. Um, but I, uh, I will say for for both of those trips. Um, I was in exceptional shape, maybe not acclimated to the altitude, but you can acclimate to altitude. Um, it didn't take too long, but I was in in really good shape, uh, just simply moving with load for hours and hours because of my you know, walking around Iraq and Afghanistan with body armor. And, uh, you know, I augmented that with, uh, you know, kettlebell training in a way that, uh, you know, I, I always prioritized power to weight ratio. Mm. So I wanted to get strong, but I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to make the engine any bigger. Right. So I, I always was like making sure I was getting stronger and getting more fit without getting bigger. And, uh, and it was in 2005, I had met Pavel, um, and kind of have kept in touch with him since and uh I've this always is pavel satsaline the kettlebell master of the planet yeah yeah yes so i've used um i've used his systems to kind of prepare me for everything from deployments to mountaineering trips and i will say that like lots of lots of kettlebell swings and things like that did have you know it did feel a lot like i was walking uphill right so uh, and I didn't get like kind of the, you know, the didn't put on the bulk that I may have with doing pure barbell type training. So, hmm. so this, did you personally seek out Pavel or was this integrated into your, uh, you know, your, your assignments, your missions, your, your team operations? No, I, I had met him. Uh, he had come to our command in like 2005 and, uh, like before that, I saw a friend of mine doing some kettlebell swings and some snatches. And I was like, you know, the first time you see that, especially in the early 2000s, it was kind of absurd looking. And I was like, you know, you're going to hurt yourself. Stop doing that. And uh, I met, you know, I met Pavel and then I would, you know, I went through his training and I just started to, I started to use it to get ready for deployments. And I noticed, um, you know, before that I would have like a, it was kind of bodybuilder style lifting, you know, you have your leg day and then you have your, you know, your back and your buys day or whatever. And then you would separate it from your cardio. And, you know, it was kind of, it just took forever to, to work out. And now I could do, you know, with kettlebell swing, like the dynamic movements, I could combine my cardio and my strength in one move. And I just noticed after six months of doing that, when I went on deployment, I actually moved well with weight. And before that, I was more disjointed, perhaps because I was doing, you know, isolate, not 
isolation bodybuilder style exercises and not augmenting it with the right cardio or not not doing it in a manner that got my heart rate going. So I just noticed when I was on, I think the first deployment after doing that training, I could all of a sudden not only move around well, but do so, you know, under load. So. Yeah. Incredible. I mean, you know, functional, functional training for what you're doing out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow, man. It's been, um, it's been, a, it's been a wild ride. And I'm curious now uh, today, you know, you've, you've been through all these incredibly intense experiences, kind of like, uh, an athlete playing in the, in the major leagues. And then, you know, now you're settling into real life with your four kids in Omaha, Nebraska. I wonder what that transition's like and how you kind of feed that, you know, competitive intensity that obviously you honed for, for so many years. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, Sometimes I go speak to groups and uh, I would, I've always said that the hardest, I mean, it's, it's hard to become a Navy SEAL and it's hard, it's hard to keep that job once you get there because of the accountability. But for what does me, that mean? You mean, uh, you can get kicked out for mistakes. Oh, really? Absolutely. Like if you make a mistake in the shoot house or if you make safety violations, if you have safety violations when you're handling demolition or you know, we're talking about dangerous things, jumping out of parachutes or jumping out of airplanes, throwing grenades, blowing stuff up and shooting at people who are shooting you. So there, the tolerance for mistakes is very minimal. So when I say it's hard to get there and it's harder to stay, I mean, it's harder to stay because they kick people out all the time for screwing up and like they should. Uh, but the harder thing for me, that always came natural to me the harder thing for me has been to get out. Um, just, you would think it'd be so easy. Like, Oh, now I can sit on the couch, get a nine to five. And you know, I don't have to worry about getting blown up or shot at or jumping out of planes, but, uh, it's hard because, you know, you were, so you were a professional triathlete. Uh, I talked to a friend who was a professional climber so much of, I think one of the hardest things is so much of how we, uh, build our identity is in what we do right so my identity was seal for so long and then to just abruptly lose that uh it was challenging and then you you can compound that with um not having an ability to you know support your family uh because i you know i didn't have a college degree all those sort of things it's not like companies aren't just hiring seals unless they're hiring security experts and things like that so transitioning, finding a job. And then another really hard aspect of it was losing that team environment. Mm. Right. So really what I've done is like, okay, now I, you know, now I, my identity is not my job. Uh, I have a job to support my family and um, my new team is my family and my other coworkers. uh, And that's kind of my new battle, if you will. And you you just got to find a way. Right. You using those same skills and leveraging those in an entirely different direction. But it, it sounds like you've done a great job with that. I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about the heart led leadership and what you're doing with Strong First. So I was the CEO for Strong First for a while, uh, about three years. Uh, I left that job would have been in 2017. I still, you know, communicate with Pavel uh, and we're still close friends. Uh, and while I was there, I actually hired 
Dr. Craig Marker. So I've heard him on your uh, podcast. Great guy. We still compare notes uh, on fitness stuff. Uh, I went and ran after that. I ran some, um, you know, some firearms training programs for a while. And now I, uh, uh, I just do a bunch of different things. I work, uh, you know, I work for the center for heart led leadership, teaching, uh, working with leaders on, you know, on everything from leadership to team building and just building culture. Uh, I do, uh, uh I'm building a training program for a uh, manufacturing company called TriTool. Uh, and I also do some work, uh, with a CBD company, uh, called Defy and I'm uh, just helping them. I've had great success with their product. So I'm helping, mm. uh, getting that into the hands of more veterans, right? Uh-huh. Just kind of, uh, doing a little bit of everything, I suppose. <laughs> Love it. And the veterans, uh, in many ways have a rough time when they're done, seems like. Yeah. Uh, for the reasons I mentioned, right. Like that, uh, kind of that identity and that, that loss of that team. And really, I mean, don't, don't, uh, don't underestimate how hard it is. You might not make much money in the military, but also it doesn't really matter because you know what everyone makes. So an E5 makes what an E5 makes. And there's no keeping up with the Joneses. Mm. You're not fooling anybody. We all know what everyone what everyone makes, uh, and that's you know. Then you get out. You you live in a neighborhood or whatever, and and you know not all of the things you learn in the military um, specifically translate to the private sector, right? Um, none of the companies that I've worked for hired me because I was a sniper, right? <laughs> So I, that that would be a specific skill transfer. However, it is on your resume, so it probably yes. came up in an interview. So tell me about your snipering, Eric, if that's the correct term. Well, there is physics involved, so. Well, just the, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of feeling like the, the, the transfer from, especially Navy SEAL, the, the most elite performer in a huge, gigantic organization and, and you know, coming through that, strict and you know narrow funnel um it seems like that would translate directly such that corporate america would be salivating to find you guys and and headhunt you immediately and put you in a position in a leadership position i mean are you kidding me going into a conference room with these these bozos that are uh, you know (laughs) blowing smoke and doing their powerpoint versus a guy who's been to war oh my gosh i would i would bet on on that guy uh, 10 times over if it's, you know, for a, a c- competition for a hiring position or something, but you're making it sound like um, you don't have that gravy train set up, even as a Navy SEAL. Well, I think, you know, there are some people that do. Um, most of us, myself included, don't have a college degree. So that's... So what? I, you, you went through Bud's training. Oh my gosh. You should have seen my roommates in college. They were the most degenerate humans. They could <laughs> barely, barely get their mouth off the bong that was at the door exiting the apartment uh, to go sit in the back of class. And then, oh my goodness. Anyway. Well, I think, you know, I think, uh, you know, corporate America has not, you know, caught up with that fact yet. I would... You know, I think most of them still look at a, a college d- degree as a prerequisite. Uh, but if you look at like my experiences or the experiences of my teammates or those who were in special operations or just military in general, like the, what you learn 
like as a as a leader, as not just a leader, but how to be a good teammate, uh, how to how to execute and get things done, um, and be you know be positive member in a in in a team and build the culture and that sort of stuff. You know they and combine that with you know especially in the case of the seals or any of these special ops that have such hard such rigorous selection if i know what i need to do uh and how to do it like i'm just purely not going to quit <laughs> and if if you just point me in a direction and give me a right and left like here's my rules and here's what you need me to go do then you know myself and other people like me who have similar, they're just not going to quit. It's going to happen, right? They're going to make it happen. Eric, I think we just figured out your next entrepreneurial project here because we have on one side, this talent pool of people that aren't going to quit and they're going to make it happen. And on the other side, we have people pulling their hair out right now today because they can't get their staff to get off a log and get something done. And oh my gosh, the, you know the the Navy SEAL headhunter uh, corporate organization is 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 ready for action. Listeners, if you want to hire a Navy SEAL, send a note to the show. We will tee you up with people that are going to rock your world. Oh my goodness, I love it. It's a great yeah. idea. Hey man, thanks so much for spending the time. That was a fascinating conversation. I, I feel like we we learned so much about you know what it's like in that you know elite world and coming from you know, the small town in Iowa to the, 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 the top of the mountain in North America, South America, amazing stuff. Thank you. I appreciate it. Where can it. we connect with you? Where do you want to send the listeners? Uh, no, I, I don't even, I guess I don't really have much to sell oh, here. Oh, Navy so. SEALs aren't, aren't banging up social media. Oh, excuse me. He's not sending uh, out selfies every day. I mean, I do have social media. Uh, yeah, let's you can follow me there. Just Eric Frohart on. Yeah, uh, um, doing the um, what were you doing? The push-ups in the snowstorm there. Yeah, that, yeah, that's a great. I love that Instagram site. Come on, go. Yeah, go okay. follow on people. Eric Frohart. <laughs> yeah, Eric Frohart uh, on Instagram and once in a while Facebook. I'm not really, you know, too active. So. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, keep it up. Keep up doing the real thing, and good luck in your new home. Awesome. Thanks, Brad. Eric Frohart, people. Thank you very much. Da, 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 da. It's a masterpiece. It's a masterpiece. Hey, this is going to be one of my favorite commercials because I get to introduce you to the delicious, nutritious, life-changing Brad's Macadamia Masterpiece. This is a mind-blowing nut butter blend that will soon ascend to your number one go-to snack, treat, or accoutrement for anything from dark chocolate, a cucumber celery smear, or mixed in with yogurt, oatmeal, cheesecake, or with a spoon right into your mouth, heading south. Let me, let me, let me tell you what I created in my kitchen through whirlwind experimentation and extreme sampling to my VIP product testing crew across the nation so far with 100% approval. In this beautiful jar, we have macadamia nuts, walnuts, cashews, the rare and precious coconut butter, coconut flakes, cacao nibs, real ancient sea salt, and organic MCT oil. Every single ingredient has been sourced to origin to be the very best we could find from around the world for the absolute highest purity and nutritional value. We 
run this product in small batches with a boutique family business in the Pacific Northwest, and everything is cold-pressed to preserve nutritional value. So if you like eating healthy, it's a dream come true for all those who are keto, primal, paleo, and vegan, vegetarian, too. I come in peace, my global healthy living friends. Masterpiece, that is. Try some now, and it will change your life. I promise. If you don't like it, send it back to me. I'll eat it. You can order Brad's Macadamia Masterpiece on Amazon. Simple, simple. Or if you're bold, daring, and adventurous, buy three and get a bottle free at bradventures.com. Buy six and we'll send you eight. Christmas shopping early instead of late at bradventures.com. Check it out. Brad's Macadamia Masterpiece. Uh. Thank you for listening to the show. We would love your feedback at getoveryourselfpodcast at gmail.com. And we would also love if you could leave a rating and a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. I know it's a hassle. You have to go to desktop iTunes, click on the tab that says ratings and reviews, and then click to rate the show anywhere from five to five stars. And it really helps spread the word so more people can find the show and get over themselves because they need to. Thanks for doing it.